14. It had grown up on that side of the brain which controls the right hand, which island as you remember, the left hemisphere. What makes this more probable is that in persons who are left-handed, the speech center lies upon the opposite or right side of the brain. So it is waste of time and does more harm than good to try to break any child of left-handedness. The spinal cord, running downward from the base of the brain, like the stalk of a flower, is a great bundle of nerve fibers, the central cable of our body telephone system. The spinal cord, this, you will remember, runs through a bony tube formed by the arches of the successive vertebrae, and as it runs down the body, like every other cable it gives off and receives branches connecting it with the different parts of the body through which it passes. These branches are given off in pairs, and run out through openings between the little sections of bone, or vertebrae, of which the spinal column is made up. They are called the spinal nerves, and each pair supplies the part of the body which lies near the place where it comes out of the cord. The spinal nerves contain nerve wires of two sorts the inward, or sensory, and the outward, or motor, nerves, the sensory, or ingoing, nerves come from the muscles and the skin and bring messages of heat and cold, of touch and pressure, of pain and comfort, to the spinal cord and brain, the outward, or motor, nerves running in the same bundle go to the muscles and end in curious little plates on the surface of the tiny muscle fibers, and carry messages from the spinal cord and brain, telling the muscles when and how to contract, as the spinal cord runs down the body, it becomes gradually smaller, as more and more branches are given off, until finally, just below the small of the back and opposite the hip bones, it breaks up by dividing into a number of large branches which go to supply the hips and lower limbs, while most of the spinal cord is made up of bundles of white fibers, carrying messages from the body to the brain, its central portion, or core, is made of gray matter, the reason for this is that many of the simpler messages from the surface of the body and the movements that they require are attended to by this gray matter, or ganglia, of the spinal cord without troubling the brain at all. For instance, if you were sound asleep, and somebody were to tickle the sole of your bare foot very gently, the nerves of the skin would carry the message to the gray matter of the spinal cord, and it would promptly order the muscles of the leg to contract, and your foot would be drawn away from the tickling finger without your brain taking any part in the matter, though, if you had been awake, you would of course have known what was going on, this sort of reply to a stimulus, or, stirring up, without our knowing anything about it, is known as a reflex movement, not only are many of these reflexes carried out without any help from the will, or brain, but they are so prompt and powerful that the brain, or will, can hardly stop them if it tries, as, for instance, in the case of tickling the feet, you can, if you make up your mind to it, prevent yourself from either wriggling, pulling your foot away, or giggling, when the sole of your foot is tickled, but if you happen to be at all ticklish, it will take all the determination you have to do it, and some children are utterly unable to resist this impulse to squirm when tickled, this extraordinary power of your reflexes has developed because only the promptest possible response, by jerking your hand away or jumping, will be quick enough to save your life in some accidents or emergencies, when it would take entirely too long to telephone up to the brain and get its decision before jumping, when you are badly frightened, you often jump first and discover that you are frightened afterwards, and this jump, under certain circumstances, may save your life, on the other hand, like all instinctive or impulsive movements, it may get you into more trouble than if you had kept still, as you will see by the picture, the spinal nerves, 
which are given off from the cord in the lower part of the neck and between the shoulder blades, are gathered together into a great loose bundle to form the long nerve wires needed to supply the shoulders and arms. Those given off from the small of the back just above the hips also run together to form, first a network and then a big single nerve cord, called the sciatic nerve, which many of you have probably heard of from the frightfully painful disease due to an inflammation of it, called sciatica. It is the largest nerve cord in the body, running down the middle of the back of the thigh to supply the muscles of two-thirds of the leg. The substance of both the spinal cord and the brain is made up of millions of delicate, tiny cells, called neurons most of which, with very long branches, are arranged in chains for carrying messages, forming the white matter, while the others lie in groups, or ganglia, for sorting and deciding upon messages, forming the gray matter, just at the top of the spinal cord, where it passes into the skull and joins with the brain, it swells out into a sort of knob, about the size of a queen olive or the head of a gold-headed cane, which is known as the medulla, or pith. This is the most vital single part of the entire brain and nervous system, and the smallest direct injury to it will produce instant death, partly because all the messages which pass between the brain and the body have to go through it, and partly because in it are situated the centers which control breathing and the beat of the heart, and another quite important but less vital center, that for swallowing, how messages are received and sent. Now to learn how smoothly and beautifully this nerve telephone system of ours works and how simple it really island although it has such a large number of lines and so many telephones on each line, and such a large central exchange. Let us see how it deals with a message from the outside world. Suppose you are running barefoot and step on a thorn. Instantly the tiny nerve bulbs in the skin of the sole of your foot are stimulated, or set in vibration, and they send these vibrations up the sciatic nerve, into and up the whole length of the spinal cord, through the medulla which switches them over to the other side of the brain up through the brain stalk, and out to the part of the surface cortex of the brain which controls the movements of the foot. All this takes only a fraction of a second, but it is not until the message reaches the brain surface that you feel pain. If you were to cut the sciatic nerve, or even tie a string tightly around it, you could prick or burn the sole of your foot as much as you pleased, and you would not feel any pain at all. As soon as the surface of the brain has recognized the pain and where it comes from, it promptly sends a return message back down the same cable, though by different nerve wires, to the muscles of the foot and leg, saying, jerk that foot away. As a matter of fact, this message will arrive too late, for the centers in the spinal cord will already have attended to this part of the matter, often almost before you know that you are hurt. However, there is plenty of other work for the brain to do, and its next step quicker than you can think, is to wake up a dozen muscles all over the body with the order, sit down, and you promptly sit down, at the same time, the brain, central, has ordered the muscles of your arms and hands to reach down and pick up the foot, partly to protect it from any further scratch, and partly to pull the thorn out of it, next it rushes a hurry call to the muscles controlling your lungs and throat, and says, howl, and you howl accordingly, another jab at the switchboard, and the eyes are called up and ordered to weep, while at the same time the muscles of the trunk of your body are set in rhythmic movement by another message, and you rock yourself backward and forward, this weeping and rocking yourself backward and forward and nursing your foot seem rather foolish, indeed you have perhaps often been told that they are both foolish and babyish, but, as you say, you, can't help it, and there is a good reason for it, the howl is a call for help, and if the hurt were due to the bite of a wolf or a bear, 
or the cut had gone deep enough to open an artery. This dreadfully unmusical noise might be the means of saving your life, while the rocking backward and forward and jerking yourself about would also send a message that you needed help. Supposing you were so badly hurt that you couldn't call out, to anyone who happened to be within sight of you, so that it isn't entirely babyish and foolish to howl and squirm about when you are hurt though it is manly to keep both within reasonable limits. If the message about the thorn had been brought by your eyes, in other words, if you had seen it before you stepped on it, then a similar but much simpler and less painful reflex would have been carried out. The image of the thorn would fall on the retina of the eye and through its optic nerve the message would be flashed to the brain, there is something slim and sharp in the path, looks like a thorn, when this message reached the brain, and not till then, would you see the thorn, just as in the case of the pain message from the foot, then the brain would take charge of the situation just as before, flashing a hasty message to the muscles of the legs, saying, jump, while its message to the throat and lungs, instead of, yell, would be merely, say, goodness, or whew, and you would say it and run on, if the thing in the grass, instead of a thorn, happened to be a snake, and you heard it rustle, then the warning message would come through your ears to the brain, and you would jump just the same, though, as it is not so easy to tell by a hearing message exactly where the sound is coming from, you might possibly jump in the wrong direction and land on top of the danger, this is the way in which you see, hear, and form ideas of things, your eye telegraphs to the brain the colors, your ear, the sounds, and your nose, the smells of the particular object, and then your brain puts these all together and compares them with its records of things that it has seen before, which looked, or sounded, or smelled like that, and decides what it is, and you say you see an apple, or you hear a rooster crow, or you smell pies baking, remember that, strange as it may seem, you don't see an orange, for instance, but only a circular patch of yellowness, which, when you had seen it before, and felt of it with your hand, you found to be associated with a feeling of roundness and solidness, and when you lifted it toward your nose, with the well-known smell of orange peel, so you called it an orange, if the yellow patch were hard, instead of elastic, to the touch, and didn't have any aromatic smell when you brought it up to your nose, you would probably say it was a gourd, or an apple, or perhaps a yellow croquet ball, this is the way in which, we say, our senses may, deceive, us, and is one of the reasons why three different people who have seen something happen will often differ so much in their accounts of it, it is not so much that our senses deceive us, but that we draw the wrong conclusions from the sights, sounds, and smells that they report to our brains, usually from being in too great a hurry and not looking carefully enough, or not waiting to check up what we see by touching, hearing, or tasting the thing that we look at, this message and answer system runs all through our body, for instance, if we run fast, then the muscle cells in our legs burn up a good deal of sugar fuel, and throw the waste gas, or smoke, into the blood, this is pumped by the heart all over the body, in a few seconds, when this carbon dioxide reaches the breathing center in the medulla, it stirs it up to send promptly a message to the lungs to breathe faster and deeper, while, at the same time, it calls upon the circulation center close to it, to stir up the heart and make it beat harder and faster, so as to give the muscles more blood to work with, if some poisonous or very irritating food is swallowed, as soon as it begins to hurt the cells lining the stomach, these promptly telegraph to the vomiting center in the brain, we begin to feel sick at the stomach, the brain sends the necessary directions to the great muscles of the abdomen and the diaphragm, 
they squeeze down upon the stomach, and its contents are promptly pumped back up the gullet and out through the mouth, thus throwing up the poisons, and so on all over the body every tiniest region or organ in the body, every square inch of the skin, has its special wire connecting it with the great telephone exchange, enabling it to report danger, and to call for help or assistance the moment it needs it. Footnotes, to give you an idea of what real things nerve trunks are. The sciatic nerve is as large as a small clothesline, or, more accurately, as a carpenter's lead pencil, and so strong that when the surgeon cuts down upon it and stretches it to cure a very bad case of sciatica, he can lift the lower half of the body clear of the table by it. The strength, of course, is not due to the nerve fibers and cells themselves but to the tough, fibrous sheath, or covering, with which all the nerves that run outside of the brain and spinal cord are covered and coated. The spinal cord, though it is between one half and three fourths of an inch across, or about the size of an ordinary blackboard planter, has little or none of this fibrous tissue in it, and is very soft and delicate, easily torn when its bony case is broken, hence its old name, the spinal marrow, from its apparent resemblance to the marrow, or soft fat, in the hollow of a bone, chapter XXI the hygiene of bones, nerves, and muscles how to get and keep a good figure erect position is the result of vigorous health, naturally and properly, an erect, graceful figure and a good carriage have always been keenly desired, and much attention has been paid to the best means of acquiring them, as we say, we try to, get the habit, of carrying ourselves straight and well, but it must be remembered that an erect figure and a good carriage are the results of health and vigor, rather than the cause of them, stooping, round shoulders, sitting, all hunched up, or a shuffling gait, arousing partly to bad habits, or, slouchiness, but chiefly to a weak muscles and a badly fed nervous system, often due to a poor digestion and a weak circulation, if a child is not healthy and vigorous, then no amount of drilling or reminders to, sit straight, and, stand erect, will make him do so, it is of great importance that the child should take an erect and correct position for reading and writing, and while sitting at his desk, and that the desk and the seat should fit him, but it is more important that he should not sit at his desk in a stuffy room long enough to be harmed by a cramped position. There are few children who will hump over at their desks, if the muscles of their backs and necks are strong and vigorous, and their brains well ventilated, nor will many of them bore their noses into their books, or sprawl all over their copy books when they write, unless the light is poor, or they have some defect of the eyes which has not been corrected by proper glasses. A bad position or a bad carriage in a child is a sign of ill health, and should be treated by the removal of its cause. Curvature is their cause and cure. There are various forms of curvatures, or bendings, of the spine which are supposed to be owing to faulty positions of sitting or of carrying the body. There is wide difference of opinions as to their cause, but this all are agreed on, that they practically never occur in sturdy, well-grown, active children, and the way that they are now corrected is by careful systems of balancing muscular exercise, open-air life, and abundant feeding, instead of using steel braces, or jackets, or schoolroom drills. Illustration, the position of the body is an index to its health. Note the pupil in the second row who evidently needs eyeglasses. Much the same is true of other deformities and defects of the body, as, for instance, round shoulders, or flat foot, or even such serious ones as club foot and bow legs. Nearly all these are caused by the weakness or wrong action of some muscle, or groups of muscles, if this be long continued or neglected, the bones which, you will remember, were made by the muscles in the first place will be warped out of shape, 
when this has occurred, it is often necessary to bring back the limb, or foot, into a nearly straight position by mechanical or surgical means, but we now largely depend upon muscular exercises combined with rubbing and massage with the hand, and on building up the general vigor of the entire body, so that the muscles will pull the limb or the backbone back into proper position. Take care of the muscles, and the bones will take care of themselves. Make the body strong, vigorous, and happy, and it will hold and carry itself. Our feet the living arches of the foot. One of the most important things to look after, if we wish to have an erect carriage and a swift, graceful gait, is the shape and vigor of the feet. Each foot consists of two springy, living arches of bone and sinew, which are also used as levers, one running lengthwise from the heel to the ball of the toes, and the other crosswise at the instep. These arches are built largely of bones, but are given that springy, elastic curve on which their health and comfort depend, and are kept in proper shape and position, solely by the action of muscles those of the lower part of the leg and calf. Illustration, imprint of one arched foot and two flat foot The absence of impression on the inner border of the normal footprint that is due to the elevation of the foot by the longitudinal arch. The other arch lies across the foot in front of this. After Schmidt, the purpose of these arches is to give or spring, like carriage springs, and thus break the shock of each step and cause the body to ride easily and comfortably. In order that a spring may give, it must expand, or spread, far the commonest and most serious cause of a poor, easily tired gait and a bad carriage is tight shoes, which, by being too short, or too narrow, or both, prevent the arches of the foot from giving and expanding. Not only does this produce corns, bunions, and lame feet, but it makes both standing and walking painful and feeble, and destroys the balance of the entire body, causing the back to ache, the shoulders to droop forward, and the neck muscles to tire themselves out trying to pull the head back so as to keep the face and eyes erect, thus one soon tires, and never really enjoys walking, if this disturbance of balance is increased by high heels, thrust forward under the middle of the foot, the result is very bad, illustration, the result of wearing a fashionable shoe on a foot that has never worn a shoe from a photograph, to a foot so cramped and bent as to prevent firmness of step and gait. Power shoes, an important factor in health. Few more ingenious instruments of crippling and torture had ever been invented than fashionable tight shoes with high heels. Kipling never said a shrewder or truer thing than when he made Mulvaney, the old Irish drill sergeant, tell the new recruit, Remember, me son, a soldier on the march is no better than his feet and this applies largely to the march of life as well. Every shoe should be at least three quarters of an inch longer, and from half to three quarters of an inch wider, than the foot at rest, to allow proper expansion of these great carriage spring arches. If children run free in the open air, either barefoot, or with light, loose, well-ventilated shoes, or sandals, they will have little trouble, not only with bunions, corns, flat foot, or lameness, but also with their backs their gait, and their carriage, easily half an hour backaches, and inability to walk far or run fast in later life, to say nothing of overfatness and dyspepsia, are caused by tight shoes, sleep and rest why we need rest, a most important element in a life of healthful exercise, study, and play is rest, even when we are hard at work, we need frequent breathing spells and changes of occupation and amusement to keep one part of our muscles, or our brains, from poisoning itself, but after a time, in even the strongest and toughest of us, there comes a period when no change of occupation, no mere sitting still, 
will rest us, we begin to feel drowsy and want to go to sleep. This means partly that the fatigue poisons, in spite of fresh air and change, have piled up faster than we can burn them, so that we need sleep to restore the body. All day long we are making more carbon dioxide than the oxygen we breathe in can take care of, while we sleep. The situation is reversed the oxygen is gaining on the carbon dioxide. This is why the air in our bedrooms ought to be kept especially pure and fresh. But the need goes deeper than this. Sleeping and waking are simply parts of the great rhythm in which all life beats a period of work followed by a period of rest. Continuous, never-ceasing activity for any living thing quickly means death. While externally the body appears to be at rest, the processes of growth and upbuilding probably go on more rapidly when we are asleep than when we are awake. The benefits of exercise are made permanent and built into the body during the sleep that follows it. The more rapidly young animals are growing, the more hours out of the 24 they spend in sleep. When you sleep, you are not stopping all the full activities of your body and mind. You are simply giving some of the most full and most important of them a chance to work. The only likeness between sleep and death is that in both the body is quiet and the eyes are closed. Really we are never more alive and growing than when asleep. It is of the utmost importance that young children especially have all the sleep they need, and that is precisely all that they can be induced to take. The best rule for you, then, to follow, is to go to bed when you feel sleepy, and to get up when you wake rested. Every child under 12 should have at least 10 hours of sleep, and every grown person 8, or better still, 9 hours, time spent in sound, refreshing sleep, is time well spent, if you cannot sleep well. It is a signal that something is wrong with your health, or your habits a danger signal of great importance, which should be attended to at once. The best and only safe sleep producer is exercise in the open air. Disorders of muscles and bones The muscles and bones have few diseases, considering how complex it island and the never-ceasing strain upon it. This moving apparatus of ours, the nerve bone muscle machine, is surprisingly free from disease. The muscles, though they form nearly half our bulk, had scarcely a single disease peculiar to them, or chiefly beginning in them, unless fatigue and its consequences might be so regarded, they may become weakened and wasted by either lack or excessive exercise, by underfeeding, or by loss of sleep, but most of their disturbances are due to poisons which have got into the blood pumped through them, or to paralysis or other injuries to the nerves that supply them, the muscles of an arm, for instance, which has been lashed to a splint, or shut tightly in a cast for a long time, waste away and shrink until the arm becomes, as we say, just skin and bone, and the same thing will happen if the nerve supplying a muscle, or a limb, is cut or paralyzed, the bones have more diseases than the muscles, but really comparatively few, considering their great number and size, and the constant strain to which they are subjected in supporting the body, and driving it forward and doing its work under the handling and leverage of the muscles, most of their diseases are, like those of the muscles, the after-effects of general diseases, particularly the infections and fevers, which begin elsewhere in the body, and the best treatment of such bone diseases is the cure and removal of the disease that caused them, repair of broken bones, if bones are broken by a fall, or blow, they display a remarkable power of repair, the skin covering them periosteum pours out a quantity of living lime cement, or animal mortar, around the two broken ends, which solders them together, much as a plumber will make a joint between the ends of two pipes. This repair substance is called callus. The most remarkable thing about the process is that, 
when it has held the two broken ends together long enough for them to nip firmly that island to connect their blood vessels and marrow cavities properly this handful of lime cement, which has piled up around the break, gradually melts away and disappears, so that, if the ends of the bone have been brought accurately together, you can hardly tell where the break was, except by a slight ridge or thickening. Troubles of the nervous system The nervous system is not easily damaged. The nervous system is subject to a good many more diseases than are either the muscles or the bones, but, considering how complex it island it is not nearly so easily damaged or thrown out of balance as we usually imagine, and has astonishing powers of repair. Instead of being one of the first parts of the body to be attacked by a disease, such as an infection or a fever, it is one of the very last to feel the effects of disease, except in the sense that it often gives early that invaluable danger signal, pain, headache. Next after fatigue the most valuable danger signal given us by our nerves is that commonest of all pains, headache. Indeed, it is not too much to say that headache is the most full pain in the world. It has little to do with the condition of the brain but occurs in the head chiefly because the nerves of the head and face are the most sensitive of all those in the body, and the first ones, therefore, to cry out when hurt. Headache has been described as the cry of a poisoned or starved or overworked nerve, and is simply nature's signal that something is going wrong. Toxins, or poisons, formed anywhere in the body, from any cause, get into the blood, are carried to the sensitive nerves of the head and face, and irritate them so that they ache. It is foolish to try to do anything to the head itself for the relief of headache, although cold cloths, or a hot water bottle, may be soothing in mild cases, the thing to do is to clear the poison out of the blood, and the only way is to find what has caused it, nearly all the things that cause headache do so by poisoning the blood, a very common cause of headache, for instance, is getting overtired, especially if at the same time you do not get enough sleep, and, as you already know, Tiredness, or fatigue, is a form of self-poisoning. Another very common cause of headache is bad air sitting or sleeping in hot, stuffy rooms with the windows shut tight. If you do this, not only are you not getting oxygen enough into your blood to burn up the waste poisons that your own cells are making all the time, but also you are breathing in the waste poisons from other people's lungs, and the germs that are always in bad air. Another very common cause of headache is eye strain. Whenever you find that, When you try to read, the letters begin to dance before your eyes, and your head soon begins to ache. It is a sign that you need to have your eyes examined and perhaps a pair of glasses fitted to enable you to see properly. Constipation and disturbances of digestion also very often cause headache by poisoning the blood, and, as you know, the first sign of a bad cold, or the beginning of a fever, or other illness, will often be a bad headache. In short, A headache always means that something is going wrong, and the thing to do is to set to work at once to see if you can find out what has caused it, and then to remove the cause. If you cannot find out the cause, then go to a doctor and ask him to tell you what it island and what to do to get rid of it. Above all things, don't swallow a dose of some kind of headache medicine, and go on with your work, or your bad habits of eating, or using your eyes, because, even though it may relieve the pain, It doesn't do anything whatever to remove the cause and leaves you just as badly off as you were before you took it. Besides, most of these headache medicines, which for a time will relieve the pain of a headache, are narcotics, or pain deadeners, and in more than very moderate doses they are poisons, and often dangerous ones, those in commonest use, known as the coal tar remedies. 
because the chemists make them out of coal tar, are likely to have a weakening effect upon the heart, and, while not very dangerous in small doses, they are very bad things to get into the habit of using. The exaggerated claims of patent medicines, the same thing must be said of the habit of dosing yourself every time you feel a pain or an ache, with some sort of medicine, whether obtained at some previous time from a doctor, or bought at a drugstore. A large majority of the medicines that are most widely advertised to cure all sorts of pains and aches contain some form of narcotic most commonly either alcohol or opium. The reason for this is that no one medicine can possibly be a cure for all sorts of diseases, and the only kind of medicine that will make almost everyone who takes it feel a little bit better for the time being is a narcotic, because it has the power of deadening the nerves to pain or discomfort. Careful analyses by boards of health and government chemists of a great number of advertised medicines have shown that three-fourths of the so-called tonics and pitters and bracers of all sorts contain alcohol some of them in such large amounts as to be stronger and more intoxicating than whiskey. The same investigations have found that a large majority of the colic cures, pain relievers, nearly all the soothing syrups and teething syrups, and most of the cough mixtures, cough cures and consumption cures contain opium, often in quite dangerous amounts. The widely advertised medicines and remedies guaranteed to cure all sorts of diseases in a very short time are almost certain to be one of two things, either out and out frauds, costing about four cents a bottle and selling for fifty cents or a dollar, or else dangerous poisons. All patent pain relievers are safe things to let entirely alone. Another risk in taking medicines wholesale especially those that are known as patent medicines, is that you never can be quite sure what you are taking, as their composition is usually kept a strict secret. It may happen to be something very good for your disease, it may be entirely useless, and it may be something very harmful. There is no one drug, or medicine, known to the medical profession, that will cure more than one or two diseases, or, 